1965 in the Genesis series, we introduced Esau, actually pronounced Esav, his other name, Edom, which means red, the Edomites, and the clan of, that it's a part of the Edomites, the Amalekites. And we began to see that the Edomites became dire enemies of Israel. And perhaps it came from the father of the Edomites. Perhaps it came from Esau himself. And again, Esau is the Hebrew pronunciation of the name that we know as Esau. Esau, he says something after Jacob got the blessing of the firstborn by deceiving his dad Isaac. You'll remember that. So, we read in Genesis 27, starting in verse 38. Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. Oh, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Yitzhak, Isaac, his father answered and told him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So Esau bore a grudge against Yaakov, Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Isaac, the father, he predicts that Esau, the Edomites, are going to break the relationship with Jacob. Now, what's very interesting is that Hebrew word that's been translated as break. Strong's number is H6561, and it's the Hebrew word parach. Oh, yeah, it means to break. It means to separate, but the implication is it's a violent break to tear apart or to rip apart. And the prediction comes true. The Edomites become a dire enemy of Israel. They ripped apart the relationship between that other part of the family. And this ripping apart of the family takes us to 586 BC when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. The Edomites are involved, possibly. It takes us to the days of Esther in Persia. The remembrance of the Feast of Purim. It takes us to Hanukkah and the revolt of the Maccabees and even to the birth of Messiah. The Edomites, the dire enemies of Israel, are involved in all of this. And we're going to see Parach. We're going to see Edom and Israel torn apart by violence and hatred. It leads Edom, the Edomites, and the clan of the Edomites, the Amalekites, to be anti-Israel, anti-God, anti-Torah, and can I say anti-Christ. So once again in the Old Testament, we see things coming to life. How dare us say that the Old Testament has been done away with? I mean, 
And I, I said it to myself, I could never understand the Old Testament. But as we put the Bible in its historical perspective, we get behind the words of the Bible and to try to figure out how it was written in their day and, and into the Hebrew. God opens our eyes and he chisels out our ears so that we can hear his teachings about Yeshua, to see Jesus in the Torah and to understand John 5, 39, where Jesus says that all scripture testifies about the Christ. All scripture testifies about him. He says that in 24 to 30 AD, there was no New Testament. All they had was the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. So are you ready to go again and let his spirit open his word? To let the his spirit come and open his Torah so that we can see him? Kedima bo nachazor la limot. Come on, let's go study. going to be in Obadiah, again, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. A lot of discussion about these two verses, and so there's a theory, and let me share the theory with you. In the book of Obadiah, verses 10 through 11, it says, Because of the violence to your brother Yaakov, to your brother Israel, you will be covered with shame. And you will be cut off forever. Remember, the you is Edom. On that day that you stood aloof, on that day the strangers carried off his wealth, meaning Israel, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. This perhaps, notice the word perhaps, is referring to the Babylonian invasion of Israel and the destruction of the temple. In other words, if this is true, and it seems to be true, okay, that the Edomites actually were allies of the Babylonians, so that when the Babylonians took Jerusalem, the Edomites came in and they looted the city along with the Babylonian soldiers. And so here we go again. Edom is the allies of the Babylonians, and we keep on seeing this evidence uh, of this group. Then comes the book of Esther. So I'm taking you through history. And in the book of Esther, everybody knows the evil guy, Haman. And in Esther 3.1, we read that Haman is an Agagite. And they say, oh, he's an Agagite, therefore he's a descendant of King Agag from 1 Samuel 15. But wait a minute. In 1 Samuel 15, it says that Samuel did not, or Saul, did not kill Agag, but everybody else. That's exactly what it says. When we go into scholarship, they're saying, why is this written? For instance, it says that Haman is uh, an Agagite, and he is the son of, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, it's a long name, starting with an H. That's a Persian name. And so there are commentators would say, see, Haman, no, he's not part of the Agagites. He's not a descendant of Esau. Why? Because his dad had a Persian name. Mordecai is a Persian name. 
Esther is a Persian name. The sons of the Maccabees. There was Mattathias the priest in the story of the Maccabee revolt. All of them. So Yehuda Maccabeus. His name was Judas. Hebrew. Maccabeus. Greek. All of his brothers had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. That's not an argument. Esther is a Persian name. She changed her name to hide the fact that she was Jewish, which is not a good thing. Okay? So that's not an argument. But every commentator, Archaeological Study Bible, ESV Study Bible, the other Archaeological Study Bible, there's two of them right now, the Encyclopedia Judaica, they say, no, it seems the writer of Esther is trying to make a connection. And it's got everything to do with the tribe of Benjamin. Remember Saul? He is the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? So when we go, there's an interesting relationship. In Esther chapter 2, verse 5, you will read that Mordecai is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin. And on top of that, it says he's the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, K-I-S-H. And then in 1 Samuel 9, going back to Saul, verses 1 through 2, we find that Kish had a son. And his son was Saul. Mordecai and Saul are connected. Oh my gosh. Now here's the interesting relationship. Mordecai is related to Saul. As the writer of Esther says, Haman is related to Agag. We continue with the relationship. Saul was to kill Agag and all the Amalekites, but didn't. Haman was to kill Mordecai. He was. And all the Jews, but didn't. That's not there by accident. And so when Christian and Jewish scholars look at the choice of the word Agagite for Haman, and they took a look at this relationship among Esther and going back to 1 Samuel 15, okay, Saul, they're saying this has got to be the connection that the writer of Esther is making. And that's they just leave it as that. And then the question is speculation. How can there be descendants of King Agag left after supposedly in 1 Samuel 15 that they were all killed? We don't know. But the writer of Esther is trying to do something and tie this together. And then who's the hero in of the book of Esther? A woman. Oh my gosh. A woman is the hero in? Okay. Huh. Here we go again, you guys, with the Bible talking about and elevating women. You have to understand, if you take the Bible and put it back into a historical context, you ladies were nothing. Oh, you were treated well in that type of stuff, but it's a patriarchal, men-controlled society. You know that, okay? And here comes the Bible, both the Torah and then later the other books, elevating women. And I mean those people who were not Jewish, those people who were Canaanite and Hittite saying, did you ever read that Jewish book? What? Oh, that story of Esther. The, uh, the woman was a hero. A woman? What? <sighs> I don't want to be part of that. A bunch of sissies. Okay? So it's very interesting from the perspective of the ancient Near East. 
This is the women's lib book. <laughs> not today, okay. Not in terms of what women are looking for in terms of women liberation, but you have to understand and put this back into its historical context. But isn't that interesting? That indeed Saul was to kill Agag and all the Amalekites, but did not. Haman was to kill Mordecai, okay, and all the Jews, but did not. And all of a sudden, Esther, who is of the tribe of Benjamin, okay, what tribe is Paul? Okay, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, I just want to throw that out, okay. Paul, our, our guy, okay, is of the tribe of Benjamin. What do we do with that? I find that interesting. I don't know where to go with it, and let's just see if God will show us something. I don't know if there's a relationship. It's, it's fun, though. So, this is an awesome connection. And again, the key figure is a woman. And now time passes. So I'm taking you through history. When we come to the time of the Maccabees, oh my goodness, happy Hanukkah, by the way. It's Hanukkah tonight. Okay, we have the first candle that we put on tonight. Yehuda Maccabeus, Judas the Maccabee. And we know that through all those events of the revolt of the Maccabees, he rededicates the temple in 164 BC. And so that's what we're remembering today. What's fascinating is some information that I want to give you about this whole Maccabean revolt. You say, what? Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Esau. Yeah. You mean Hanukkah is related to Esau? Yeah. Let's take a look. First Maccabees chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now this is after Yehuda Maccabeus actually again gains Jerusalem, secures the temple, and they do the dedication. So this is after, because that happens, I think, in First uh, Maccabees chapter 4. So this is chapter 5. Now it came to pass, when the nations around about, now this is around about Jerusalem, heard that the altar and sanctuary were built up as before, they got ticked. No, doesn't, they got angry, okay? They, they were really hacked. And they thought to destroy the generation of Jacob, the generation of Israel, that were among them, and they began to kill some of the people and persecute them. Now, these are non-Jews, okay? When they heard about this, started killing Jews. Then Yehuda, Maccabeus, ah, our guy, Judas fought against them. He fought against the children of Esau in Idumea. Because after the Babylonian invasion, way back in 586 BC, the Edomites left the mountains of Seir, which is on the other side of the Arava Valley, and moved into southern Israel until they established their own little country called Idumea. Their head city was Meresha. I take people to Meresha. You can walk that town. It was the capital city. Antipater, Herod's dad, probably grew up there, and Herod probably grew up there. At least that is an assumption that makes sense. There's no archaeology to prove it. But it was the head cap, it was the capital. So they were fighting against Esau in Id or the children of Esau in Idumea, in other words, the Edomites, because Idumea is Greek for Edom. Because they had beset the Israelites round about, and he made a great slaughter of them. 
Now, a little bit later on, this is not in 1 Maccabees, but this is about comments on history. This is actually comes from Josephus. Judas had a nephew, okay, and his nephew was John Hyrcanus, the grandson of Mattathias. So this is all the Hasmonean family, the Maccabean family. John Hyrcanus becomes the guy. He's high priest and king. He initiated a military campaign against the Edomites, against Idumea. And this is going to be in 112 BC. He conquered Adora, Maresha, remember that's the town that I just told you, and other Idumean towns. Hyrcanus then instituted forced conversions on the Idumeans to Judaism. This was an unprecedented move for a Judean ruler. No Judean ruler, no ruler of Israel ever forced anybody to become or convert to Judaism. Hyrcanus did. Now, it is generally accepted that about 73 BC in Idumea, which is south of Judea, only Mauritius, 30 miles from Jerusalem, Herod was born. He was the second son of Antipater, the Idumean. A high-ranking official under the ethnarch Hyrcanus II and Sifros a Nabataean. Herod's father was by descent an Edomite, descendants of Esau, whose ancestors had converted to Judaism. Herod was raised as a Jew, but he was not a Jew. So that is a mistake that has actually come forth that may be confusing many of us sometimes that Herod was a Jew, and he absolutely was not. He's a descendant of Esau. And all of a sudden we come to Matthew chapter 2. Now, by the way, isn't that interesting? Because what I just read about was the time of the Maccabean revolt. And all of a sudden there's Hanukkah. And now we have Herod that comes out of this. And all of a sudden we see some of these crazy historical connections. Because we come to Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And I always like to go off a little bit on this word. He was troubled. My grandson, okay, who's a senior now at a Christian high school. I taught him how to play chess a number of years ago. And now he studies chess from a grandmaster on the internet. And he beats me all the time. This troubles me. <laughs> Herod was troubled. He probably lost a lot of chess games. No. Hebrew word there is taraso. Oh, the Greek word, excuse me. The Greek word there is taraso. And again, when you go into the Thayer's lexicon, not Strong's Concordance. Never. And I've said this before. Never use Strong's Concordance to actually look up the definition of a Hebrew word. You should, if you got one, go to the beginning of the Strong's Concordance and read what it says the purpose of the concordance is. And they will tell you. In every concordance, I've got three of them, and they all say the same thing. The concordance is to locate a word, period. That's it. And it will say, you need a good dictionary or lexicon to actually determine the meaning of the word that is used in context. 
because Hebrew does not have definitions. It's a conceptual, pictorial, a pictorial meaning. So it changes. Like shalom, oh, it means peace. No, it doesn't. It means a completed building. And then you say, what? That's the picture. Wouldn't you agree that if you go into a building under construction, or if you go into a building that is complete, that if you go into the building complete, you'll probably have a peace of mind rather than going into the place where a hammer may fall on your head? You see what's going on? One is secure, one isn't. One will give you peace, one will. So peace is part of it, but shalom is bigger than that. It's a conceptual idea. So you can't use uh, concordances to actually determine the meaning because the meanings change in terms of the actual context. At any rate, Thayer's lexicon would say that this word terrasso in Greek, which is G5015, if you're interested, that's the Strong's number, it means to agitate, to be troubled, or to strike one's spirit with fear or dread. Now, this, that's it. Herod was forced into Judaism, and it says in a book of prophecy that he was familiar with called Obadiah, that if this is the day of the Lord, in other words, if this is the time of Messiah, now remember, Messiah came twice. Once at the end of the times, he's coming a second time, right? But he can't, now all of a sudden he's here. What is he saying? If this is Messiah, I'm a dead man. Because all of Edom will be destroyed. So the Christmas story? The birth of Messiah? This is huge. This is just gigantic. To me, when I look at this event, the birth of Jesus, you have to realize that he was born five miles from Herod's palace called the Herodium. I mean, Mary could walk out of that cave, maybe underneath the house or wherever she was. All she had to turn and look a little bit east, and there it was. You can't miss it. You can see it from Jerusalem. If you're on the Temple Mount, you can see at least part of the Herodium, not the tower, which is now gone. The king of the Jews is Herod. And what did the Magi say? We came here because the star proclaims whose birth? The king of the Jews. And they said that in front of Herod? Are you kidding? An earthquake happened. What you have to understand, this cute little story about the baby and the lambs, the shepherds and the angels is a power trip. The baby won. Edom is destroyed. The Edomites disappear from the face of the earth after the temples destroyed in 70 AD. There is no more records of Edomites ever again. Edomians, Edomia is gone, everything. So the time of Messiah was here, and for some reason, how that all disappears. I'm not trying to say they all got killed at one time. They just melded off. Okay. Now, I took you all the way from Genesis all the way to here to tell you, once again, we see this Bible as one book about one God, about one Savior, about one gospel. When you begin to see just this connection between the birth of the Messiah and the Torah, we started in Torah, and all of a sudden we're here. 
This is all in the this is all in the family. Herod's part of the family for God's sake. He's a descendant of Esau. That's family. There's a verse in John verse chapter 1 verse 17 that I'd like to quote. Actually two verses, this one and another one. And in John chapter 1 verse 17 we read this, for the law, which means Torah. Okay? God's instruction was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Okay? That verse has been so abused in the church. You'd say, therefore, throw the Torah out because it has no grace. Wait a minute. <clears throat> Torah means instruction. It doesn't mean law. The church has taught that the Jews are saved by practicing the law. Absolutely no. You talk to a religious Jew and you say, how are you saved? By grace and by grace alone. Let me give you one. Let me give you one. All of a sudden, something just jumped out at me. Let me go to Psalm 6, and let me read the first four verses. Psalm 6, by David, by the way. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Now listen. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Listen to this. Save me. Because of your, now, I'm not going to use the English word. I'm going to give you the Hebrew, chesed. Save me because of your chesed. What does chesed mean? Grace. Not the law. Here's David talking about Psalm 6. We miss it because we don't understand the Hebrew. We're reading in English. His loving kindness. No, his grace. And his loving kindness. And his compassion. Again, chesed is bigger than just grace. So it's interesting that here God is saying, I'm giving you my Torah, my instruction. Don't lie. Okay? Just want to let you know, don't lie. By the way, Sabbath, keep it. Okay? Just want to let you know. So, so I've got some laws in here, some commands. Okay? Uh, don't commit adultery, guys. Got it? Ladies? Okay, you too. No, no, uh, uh, don't do that. So he's giving instruction. He's giving his laws. He's giving us an idea of how to live the righteous life. But it's really fascinating because when we go to Acts 13.39, I'm not going to read it, but I will paraphrase it. In Acts 13.39, Paul is on his first, what we call his missionary trip. He's actually going out to make disciples, not plant churches. Anyway, in Acts 13.39, He's at a Jewish synagogue in a place called Antioch of Pisidia, and he basically says this, what the Torah could not do, Jesus did. Paul never said the Torah is done away with. He said what the Torah couldn't do, Jesus did. What does the Torah not do? Now in 100 AD, Rabbi Akiva, one of the great Jewish rabbinical scholars, said there's no sacrifice, no ritual, nothing in the Torah that will help us be cleansed and forgiven of intentional sin. And there isn't. Maimonides in the 12th century AD said the same thing. There's no sacrifice, no bull, no number of bulls, no lambs, nothing. The Torah does not say that. And remember, they're talking about intentional sin because they have two types of sin, unintentional and intentional. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. 
Have you ever heard that in the, in the writer of Hebrews? No lamb, no sacrifice, nothing can take care of sin. He means intentional sin. That's the idea of sin for us, though. By the way, the Christians, okay, we don't have two different types, okay? Uh, basically, we would say there's sin and mistakes, okay? You make a mistake. Okay, not my fault. It's an error. Okay, oops. It's an oops. So you got oops, okay, and intentional sin. The Jews said it's called unintentional sin and intentional sin. Different ideas. So what's the only solution that Christian, that God presents to both Jew and Gentile alike so that we have the forgiveness of intentional sin, the cleansing of the debt of our sin, everything. Because remember, Jesus paid the debt. He not only have that, that's key. So what the written Torah was not created to do, God did in Jesus' blood. I'll give you an example. Remember David? Remember his situation with um, Uriah? The husband of Bathsheba. He wanted her. She wanted him. They were in cahoots together. At least that's my assumption. He had Uriah killed. That's murder. Was David forgiven? Yes. What's the penalty? His son. Moses, did he sin? Oh, big time. God said, ah, the people want water again? Ay, 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 complaining all the time. Holy cow. Hey, Moses. Yes, Lord. You got that staff of yours? Oh, are you kidding? Got it with me all the time. Here's what I want you to do. Remember last time you hit the rock? You don't have to hit the rock. Okay, no, anymore. you're getting you know, wiser here. Just go to the rock, take your staff with you, and speak to it. So what does he do? He goes there. He hits the rock with the staff, but he says this, You miserable Israelites, Aaron and I will give you water. That's the sin. Not hitting the rock with a stick. I think that's part of it. Okay, that's not the big part of it. Was he forgiven? Are you kidding? Moses? God loves him. Buried him. Himself. What was the penalty? That's his whole life. His whole life. His entire mission. There's one time in the Torah, we'll get there probably in 20 years. Okay, it's in Deuteronomy sometime. But we get there, Peggy's laughing. You're going to be a really old lady, okay? And I'm going to be a really old guy, okay? That's going to be interesting, me teaching in 25 years from now. Anyway, in Deuteronomy, what we have is Moses complaining to God. Come on, can I get in? This is me. Come on, it's Moses. And God said, don't you ever bring that up again. Ever. Done is done. In Jesus, the penalty is paid. Now you understand. God forgave Moses. God forgave David. There are other instances of that, but there's always a penalty. Huge. Huge. So, to understand the cross, to understand salvation, you need the Torah. You cannot have one without the other. There is, a, this was really cool. This is not some scholarship paper, but I came to a Messianic ministry and um, called El Shaddai Ministries out on the West Coast. I really love these guys. And so here's the top 10 reasons why Christians should know the Torah. The top 10. I'm not going to read all 10. 
I'll give you three. Jesus can be found there. Oh, hello. That's what John's teaching here. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the Torah and the prophets wrote. Wait a minute, Philip. Where? You see what I'm getting? They get it. We don't because we're not Jewish. And the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How can you know the answer if you never know the question? The only recognized Yeshua as the Messiah, they only recognized Yeshua as the Messiah because they knew the Torah. The Torah is where the hidden treasure is found. That's reason number one. Here's reason number two. Reason number two why Christians should know the Torah. So you can probably understand who Jesus is. Luke 24, 27. Beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, beginning from Moses, that's the Torah, and from all the prophets, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yeshua began with Moses, and so should we. How can we claim to know Yeshua if we know nothing of his family, his culture, or his country? That's why I took you through this. I wanted you to see this. This is huge. Nobody teaches this. And I'm not accusing them or criticizing them of that, but I need to come to the history, to the culture, and so on, to give you another perspective. This is not the perspective, it's just another one, okay? Because there are great teachers of the Torah all over. Dennis Prager's one, he teaches a completely different perspective, and it's just different perspectives. I kind of teach like him, but I take it to Jesus. He's Jewish, he doesn't know Jesus. I do, so I want to take it to him all the time. That's why I'm reading this. You'll never hear Dennis Prager read this. Okay. The top ten reasons, number three. So we can believe Jesus is the Messiah. So we can believe he's the Messiah. Whoa. John chapter 5, 46 and 47. For if you believe Moses, this is Jesus. He's God. And what is he saying? If you believe Moses, you believe me. Hello? This is the only Bible that they had. For he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's in the Torah. Believe him. Then you'll believe me. If you throw out the Torah and claim it as irrelevant, you have no validation for your belief in Jesus, Yeshua. It's not a matter of Moses versus Jesus. It is a belief that what Moses says proves your belief in Messiah. Amazing stuff. So to finish up Lesson 66, I have done a series of uh, videos. They're entitled Five Small Stones, and they're five-minute videos, five-minute Bible studies. The first ten of them are basically related to Revelation 22, verse 13, where Jesus says, I am the... Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Actually, he's speaking in Hebrew, so he's probably saying, I am the Aleph and the Tav, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Talking about how is Jesus the first and the last. Now, in one of these videos, I deal with a phrase that you may be familiar with, and the phrase is, how is Jesus the end of Torah? Paul states this in Romans 10, verse 4. But it's not what you think. It's not what you think when you're reading in English because we're not understanding the Greek word. It's translated as end 
but we think Torah's done away with. The Old Testament is null and void. It doesn't mean that. The Greek basically means that the Torah, uh, the Hebrew scriptures for that matter, the prophets, the Psalms, and everything else, they're not done away with, but they're completed in Jesus. It's as if God gave his instruction, his Torah, inspiring Moses to write it down, and in it God teaches us, and he's teaching us that something's missing. The Torah is like an arch, where you got one side of the arch and the other side of the arch, and everything is held together by the center stone, the last stone that's put in. Right at the top of the arch, it's called the keystone. The keystone of the arch is that last stone putting in the arch so it holds it all together. Well, it's as if the Torah is an arch and it's got a, a missing piece. It's got the missing keystone. So that video that I'm talking about in that series shows how Jesus is that keystone, how he came to complete the Torah. Now, I've linked you to the entire series of videos, Five Small Stones. There's 11 of them. The first 10 deal with how is Jesus the first and the last. Number 11 starts a new uh, concept. The geography of the Bible. But I've linked you to all 11. And the one that you may be interested in that's related to what I'm just talking about is number 9. This deals with Jesus, how, how Jesus is the last. How Jesus is the completion of Torah. Another thing that I'm just going to mention as well is that you can actually go to the website www.lightofmenorah.org And remember, menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, so www.lightamenorah.org. And off on the right side, you'll see an icon for YouTube. If you click on that, you'll go to our YouTube channel, and once you're there, look for the word playlists. It should be just above some of the initial pictures of some of the videos and some of the uh, podcasts. If you go to playlists and click on that, you'll see everything organized in sections and one section is five small stones so if you go there uh, you can click on those videos and you can find number nine obviously quite easily by going to our YouTube channel so we're gonna again see that indeed that the Old Testament definitely testifies of Jesus we're studying Esau Esav, Edom, Edomites, and its historical context. And we're seeing how God is putting the final piece of his redemption plan together, and it's Jesus. So in Lesson 67, we're going to return to Genesis. We're going to return to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob's on his way to Haran, to his uncle Laban's house. His mom overheard Esau say that he wants to kill Jacob. So Rebekah basically says, Jacob, get out of town. Now along the way, Jacob stops for the night, falls asleep, and he has an awesome dream. He sees a ladder going up to God's dwelling place, up to heaven, we might say. And there's ones going up and down in the ladder. Are they angels? That's what your Bible says in English. The only thing is, they're not angels. Get this, you guys. 
There's no such thing as angels as you think you know them with wings and little halos and all that type of stuff. In God's word anywhere, New Testament, Old Testament. So what are they? On top of that, some say that the place where this dream happened is the current Temple Mount in Jerusalem because Jacob calls it Bethel, the house of God. <laughs> We're going to see it can't be. And then Jacob sets up a matzabah, a sacred standing pillar. Now, those of you who know that archaeology are going to say, huh, how can this be? Setting up a matzabah, a sacred standing pillar, is a pagan practice. God condemns this practice. In Leviticus 26, verse 1, and Deuteronomy 16, verse 22, and in, and in Deuteronomy 16, 22, God says he hates the use of matzabah. And yet Jacob sets up one. What is going on? Matter of fact, after God states his law about the matzabah, the sacred pillars that pagans used, they are never used again in Israel. Never. Except in rebellion. These are some interesting things to consider. So I will see you in Genesis Lesson 67. So until then, Lech Shalom B'Shem Yeshua Aronenu. Go in Shalom in the name of Jesus our Lord. <laughs>